Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Week 10 reading. So this week's reading is, uh, is actually a legal piece, uh, which I think is really interesting, kind of a bit of a change from the usual um, kind of uh, psychological research and kind of, you know, methods, analysis, data, results, etc. Uh, but it's by Paul Litton in 2018, so, it, so it's, it's relevant and it's recent, and it's really kind of a an interesting piece that seeks to explore, I guess, one of the main topics we have for this week and then also some of the some of the weeks going forward. But it's about this this kind of conceptualization of the relationship between a person and their brain and the the implications of that for kind of legal culpability. Now I think it, it, it's quite interesting because this article focuses to a degree on kind of traumatic brain injury, which is, you know, obviously traumatic brain injury, TBI, is kind of the cases in which an individual, you know, suffers a, a significant head wound and, you know, it, it causes a, a quantitative shift or deviation in either their personality or their functioning, you know. A classic kind of Phineas Gage incident, right? You know, so Phineas Gage, Gage is a nice guy, works at a building site, everything's pretty decent. Uh, you know, Phineas Gage gets a lead pipe through the head. Uh, Phineas Gage can no longer control his behaviour, right? Everyone's like, oh, you know, Phineas has changed so much. Now, the modern the modern version of that, and actually one of the reasons I think this, this area is so important, is that a lot of the TBI we're now seeing, you know, is coming from, you know, is coming from the veterans who have, you know, been to war and have suffered TBI as part of their, you know, their responsibilities and their, um, their responsibilities and their roles as soldiers. Uh, or, you know, athletes we know are seeing a lot of TBI. So, you know, the NFL and all these kind of sports, you know, a lot of people are suffering TBI. Now, from a criminal standpoint, here's where that's really interesting, is that, their brains are being morphologically changed by environmental factors outside of their control and in the in the in the in the army you know environmental factors or armed forces sorry environmental factors that are not only out of their control but that they are exposed to you know in the service of their country and you know in the service of you know the the nation so from a criminal standpoint, I think it's really important to think about the effect of TBIs and, and, and morphological brain changes on behavior, because in those instances, you know, these it's not their fault that their brain was traumatically injured. And therefore, any, um, any effects of that on their behavior also to a degree isn't their fault, right? So, if you can think about that as a kind of a a model, if you will, you know, the, the, there's an individual and their brain, and those two are in kind of a partnership. And and events outside of their control have affected their brain, and that has changed the way in which they behave. I think from a very few people would argue against that being a consideration if calculating a case of criminal culpability. Now, here's why it's so interesting, is because... Let's say and this is where this is where we really get into a gray area. Let's say we're thinking about something such as um, a genetic issue. So right, let's say you've got an individual, right? Let's say he's a soldier and the soldier uh, has a traumatic brain injury and that traumatic brain injury 
uh, impacts the frontal lobe of the soldier. So there's an incident in which he acts aggressively and, and can't control a violent impulse. And the lawyers say, you know, well, he's got this frontal lobe damage uh, that stemmed from his time at war. And obviously he therefore can't control his own impulses. And you say, okay, yeah, I, I see the pattern there. What if they had a gene and the gene led to a universal weakening of the frontal lobe? And then the exact same thing happens. And they say, well, it wasn't their fault. They have this gene that, that affects their frontal lobe. Now, what's interesting in this case is that the brain looks the same in both cases at the time of the, the incident. But in one of them, the brain didn't look that way and then became that way from, a, from an external traumatic brain injury. And the other one, it was, you know, it was genetically encoded that way. And the latter is a little bit more problematic, I think. I think from people just to, to assess because there's almost no pre-version of them. So it's a really complicated issue about how do we handle morphological changes in the brain? And we can either look at them from a TBI standpoint, so when there's a brain injury, or... We can look at it from a, a almost a, a encoding or developmental standpoint in which that their brain was, you know, developed with certain abnormalities. And again, a classic example of that, if we were to look at one, a classic example of that would be something like psychopathy, you know, where, you know, the, the psychopath's brain famously has a tiny amygdala. You know, they didn't get smacked in the head and they got a tiny amygdala. They, they're genetically encoded to have a, uh, you know, a less reactive amygdala or you know, early childhood experiences led to this. So you know, it, it's, it's the, the, the outcome is the same, but the way in which it got there is completely different. And these are the kind of the crazy, challenging questions we kind of have to get into if we're going to start looking at the brain either as a source of, um, source of, of culpability or a source of... Um, uh, so almost like mitigation or culpability, if you will. And actually, we'll see in a later week that we can kind of use the brain for both. So what they do here, and the, one of the reasons I like this paper is I think it does an interesting thing of kind of a, a almost segregating moral and criminal responsibility and kind of do we do we argue that those are are two different things? And, and, and one, you know, is the criminal responsibility in terms of culpability and moral responsibility is almost the the idea of... of, of of knowing right from wrong. And so what, what Lytton does in this paper, which I, which I really like, is he basically says, okay, well, if we're going to say that a traumatic brain injury affects culpability and or responsibility, then there are four different ways in which we could realistically argue that that is the case. So the first one, kind of A, right? It was his brain, not him. So what he's saying here basically is that the the sole source of the behavior is solely applicable or, or I guess explainable at the biological level and that there was no conscious control or almost kind of conscious coupling between the, the individual as the self and the kind of the brain operating, you know, as as is. Now, that, that I guess you would almost call that kind of extreme bottom-up processing. So, you know, the, the classic example I'd give there is, you know, if I threw a ball at you, you know, you, you, you would dodge. You didn't think 
to dodge. You just dodged. Now, that is your brain. Uh, it's, it's technically the... Oh, God, let me get my vision right. It's the rods. It's the rods or the cones? It's the rods in the eye which detect motion, sending a rapid signal to... Um, is it F5? V5. V5? V1. Fuck it. it sending a rapid signal to the, to the areas of the brain that detect, spatial, uh, that detect spatial movement to tell you that there's a, a ball coming at your head pretty quickly. And that you need to move. And you do all of that without actually thinking or kind of or processing that. You don't process the ball and decide to move. You just move. That, I think, is, is, is the extreme bottom-up, top-down version of kind of it was his brain, not him. The second one, his brain injury causally determined his wrongdoing. So this, this one's very interesting. So th this one is that the soul location of the brain injury is causally responsible, meaning that the, the, the processes and or absence of the processes in this area of the brain are the proximate cause for why the individual did what they did. Okay, the third one, his brain injury diminished his capacity for rationality. Now, this one I actually think is, is an interesting one, because in this version, you still have conscious control and you still have a coupling of the self and the brain. So you're still aware of what you're doing and you're still you still have the, I guess, the subjective feeling of control over your actions and you are consciously deciding what you're going to do. But the difference is that you're... The difference is that you aren't aware that what you're doing is wrong, even though everybody else would tell you that it's wrong. And this, so this is very, very close to, I'm think, like thinking about it now, it's very, very close to the kind of the, the Anders Breivik and the kind of the McNaughton laws that we, we discussed. That, you know, you, the person... The person is able to decide themselves, but they're deciding in a way that is that is 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 atypical, and that that atypicality is specifically derived from these kind of you know these deviations in the in the structure and or processing of the brain. And the final one is, and this is interesting, the brain injuries cause a severe uh, volitional impairment. Now, this one is very much the the brain injury causes a significant deviation in the self to the point that the self is no longer the same individual as they were pre-injury, which I think is a really interesting TBI concept. So it, it's that classic case of, you know, someone was like, there was a, one of the legal cases in this kind of area is, you know, there's this young boy who's, you know, very, very nice, never done anyone any harm, you know, never does anything wrong in his life, perfect student ends up in a car crash in which he suffers, you know, a traumatic brain injury. And afterwards, you know, becomes very aggressive, very violent, um, engages in a number of assaults and harming people. And the the kind of the argument here is, you know, well, well, there's a kind of a, a pre-traumatic brain injury version of this individual. And then there's a post-traumatic brain injury version of this individual. And they are so different and... Um, and, and there's such a significant deviation between the two that you can't realistically hold that the individual who existed pre the injury 
is in any way still in existence or control of their behavior post-injury, post, post-injury, because the difference between the two individuals is so drastic. And that's a very, very kind of stark um, case that you'll often see. So, I mean, I mean, oh God, I'm already running long. I haven't even got to page one. Um, so Paul Litton basically starts with a, a kind of an interesting story of Cecil Clayton, basically kind of a, a classic um, uh, nine, so he, 1974 case basically of a murderer and, and what Clayton tried to do was Clayton basically tried to argue that it was his brain and, and he was unsuccessful and I believe he was he was given the the lethal injection so he's just setting the scene really with this idea that you know that Clayton kind of argued that his brain injury was relevant to his responsibility and that his attorneys tried to claim this but kind of um you know what are the what what is the route through which we attribute causality to the brain and away from the individual and so um on page kind of 38 uh, he kind of you know uh what 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 Lytton does is he kind of says well you know there are these kind of these five ways in which i guess we could kind of you know link these two things and so he says the first one is kind of his injured brain not clayton is responsible for his crime so you know we we kind of place causality on the on the brain and not the individual right two Though Clayton did commit the crime, he did not have free will, given that his actions were caused by his brain injury, which was outside of his control. So that very much is kind of a... a Clayton was aware, but he was unable to... Um, he was unable himself to control his behaviours, and that very much comes back to that kind of Cote uh, argument I made in the in the in the debate around kind of you know this idea of the weakness of will and you know the that free will isn't interpreted about as your freedom to do a behavior more often it's important to think about free will as your ability to not do a behavior and so what you'd be arguing here is that his brain is drastically reducing his free will in terms of him his ability to control behaviors so the end of the in, uh, three the injury caused cognitive impairment such that he could not act rationally that's kind of a he he did think he did decide but his calculus is so atypical driven by a faulty brain that we can't really uh he doesn't really he can't really kind of evaluate it or, or held to blame as such and then four, the injury impaired his volitional capabilities, such that he had too much difficulty controlling his uh, emotions and impulses, kind of a classic frontal lobe argument. And five, the injury caused such an extreme personality change that the person who uh, existed after the injury was no longer Cecil Clayton. So it's kind of a re-kind uh, re of outlining those, those early arguments. But, but it's interesting to see, because I think that we, we often think about what the relationship is between the brain and the behavior, but... It is interesting to kind of outline the different pathways that you can take if you're gonna try and and separate those two. So you know what what is it you're saying when you say that the brain affects behavior? Are you saying that the person is is a different person? Are you saying that the brain is operating independently? Are you saying that they still have control, but their brain is making calculations in a way that is is atypical and solely driven by the brain injury like what what is the what is the specific channel that you are arguing and what's interesting is that each different channel is almost going to map onto kind of a different part of the brain that you're going to you know be arguing that there's a deficit in right so so with uh, with Cecil Clayton Cecil over here you know if you if you just quickly jump to um 
uh, where is it? There it is. Uh, 37, you know, basically says that, you know, he lost some of his frontal lobe. Well, frontal lobe is impulse control, right? So that means that you can really, you know, you're maybe going to go down to down number three or number four, you know, this his, his ability to control himself. But the frontal lobe doesn't really do too much in terms of, you know, value salience and things like that. So you wouldn't really argue number two or number five. So it's interesting that the nature of the, the neural abnormality will dictate the argument that you can make if you're if you're if you're trying to kind of i guess move culpability over so if we if we just look so what, what Lytton does now is he kind of just works his way through the 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 kind of the the five different uh, i think it's four actually four different kind of statements or, or approaches um that you can take when it comes to kind of separating you know i guess brain from um brain from person so the first one and he, he doesn't I don't think Lytton is particularly impressed with the first one. Um, I think it's probably the the hardest one. But he says it, it was not his. It was his brain, not him. Now it's a. It's funny that he doesn't like this one because I actually think that this one might be one of the ones that's more compelling. But what he's basically saying is that the brain is driving the ship and not the human. And there's actually a lot, a lot, a lot of research on. This idea that people kind of call the, they kind of call it the confabulatory left hemisphere, which is this idea that the language part of the brain creates the illusion of of control and the illusion of um, the illusion of uh, coherent or, or a kind of controlled existence. Um, and that actually the right hemisphere, which controls all of our movements, kind of does whatever the hell it wants. Uh, independent of, of any thought, and then afterwards our brain kind of catches up and and our and we kind of create a lived existence. But it's this um, it's this really good book I was reading on it recently about kind of the, the overlap of uh, of Buddhism and neuropsychology. But it, but it's this idea that we don't really control anything, um, and that our brain is doing whatever the hell it wants at any one time, and we kind of you know afterwards we're like, oh yeah, no, I definitely wanted to do that. But but there's actually a quite a strong line of argument about the fact that the brain controls a lot more of our behavior than we think it does and kind of i think that's kind of what he's really probably at best going with there um but b is interesting so his brain injury causally determined his wrongdoing so this is the the kind of the so so the, again this is very much cody's kind of weakness of will argument here so if you just scroll down to kind of halfway down page 40 you know this argument is based on the intuition that responsibility requires free will and free will requires the capacity to choose among genuine alternate alternatives one might acknowledge that clayton made choices but wonder upon learning about the severity of his brain injuries whether he really could have made different choices than the one that he did and i really like this argument because what 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 he's saying in B, which is really interesting, is in that situation, even if you changed elements of the environment, does does oh I see he's using it, does Clayton does Clayton have the capability to not do the behavior? Right? So so he gives a really, really good argument. Um if we go to uh, I actually have to skip quite far ahead. Um, yeah, so you actually have to skip quite far ahead to get to, to to kind of the end of page 42. And basically, what he's saying, which I think is a really cool argument, is imagine a kleptomaniac. So a kleptomaniac is someone who has a, a pathological addiction to theft. 
as a so they they, they constantly steal right so they're, they're basically thieving addicts and there is a there is a there a, there is a neurological explanation for kleptomania what he's saying is if the kle- if you had a kleptomania a kleptomaniac and you change the environment to the point where they were guaranteed to get caught. So you would literally put a police officer right next to them. And they still steal things. What it shows you is that they have such an inability to not steal things. Hang on, have I phrased that correctly or is that a double negative? Yes, they have such an inability to not steal things that you cannot say that they had the free they they chose to steal things because they very evidently don't have the free will to not choose that is circular but but, but that's basically what he's saying right he's saying that if you don't have the free will to not do the behavior you cannot be held culpable for the behavior because you have no ability to do to not do it if you are put in the situation and so what he's saying is that if that inability stems from basically a a a neurological deficit or a tbi then you have to blame the brain as causal because it is creating in them a complete inability to not do the behavior like the, the best way to think about this, literally, I'll, I'll put it, I won't make it mandatory reading because it's way too long and way too philosophical. But, but uh, Cote's weakness of will paper basically says that your inability, your, your ability to do something is only dictated by your inability to not do it. And so what Lytton is saying is that if you have a neural injury, that renders you incapable of not doing something, then you can't be blamed because you don't have the capability to not do it. I, I, I hope I've made that clear, but that's kind of, it, it's, it's a very, very interesting argument. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually one I really like. And it's very much, it's very frontal lobe I think you can probably all imagine that because the frontal lobe is the, the frontal lobe controls are, is the thing that controls our, ability to not do something therefore if you're going to talk about the inability to not do something you would in theory have to talk about the frontal lobe so the next one is his brain injury diminishes his capacity for rationality now this one is kind of a uh a classic so this is very much the the bravik argument but it would be it would be play it would be bravik in terms of he 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 honestly is consciously aware of what he's doing, but he is thinking in such a warped calculus that in the Bravik case, you would put it down to mental illness. In this case, you would put it down to mental illness or at least an incapacity to, to, to be tried. But you would be very much saying that that actually comes from the brain. So this is very much an amygdala argument, very much an emotional um, an emotional processing argument, but what it's saying is that there are that you can have diminished capacity for rationality based on a neurological deficit or a neurological um, or a, or a neurological injury. So someone who has a injury to the amygdala, for example, is shown to show less emotional processing. So when they calculate, you know, is this behavior going to hurt someone? They may be 
physically, and I mean like physically their amygdala can't do it, they may be physically incapable of calculating the degree to which they are going to harm someone because they're a, a, a physical part of their brain, the neurons in it, don't fire the same way or don't fire at all or whatever it is. So they're going to go through the process. A lot of these arguments are that people don't go through the process of weighing up A and weighing up B. This one is saying they weigh up A and they weigh up B, but because of something in the brain, they are unable to actually weigh up A and B properly. And therefore, they make the decision that they make. But the reason that they haven't weighed it up properly is because of their brain. And that's kind of what's causing that um, them to kind of think that the, that the behavior that they're doing is, is kind of the right one. And last one, sorry, I realized I've gone way long. The last one is that the brain injury caused a severe volitional impairment. Um, and this is one that basically is kind of like that the they've completely kind of changed who they are, you know, that they've it basically they it just changes them as 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 a person, really. And th- at that point, they basically are unable to their temperament changes, their mood changes, their their traits change, everything changes in that sense. And so very much this is a very much a binary kind of pre-damage, post-damage kind of argument where, you know, so, so you can see here, you know, so he had 20% of his frontal lobe removed and he became impatient, unable to work, more prone to violent outbursts, right? So this is very much, you know, the, the, the injury to their brain caused observable, quantifiable shifts in their personality. So again, I actually think DNA, D and A, not DNA, D and A in his arguments are very, very similar. And I not entirely think I don't entirely think he demarks them as well as he could, but but they both kind of are, are, are saying the same thing. So really, if I were to take anything from this article, I would probably take. Uh, I mean, I'd probably take. I mean, I think when it comes to the brain, there's a fundamental split of it's either the emotional processing or it's the impulse control. And I think if you go back to almost like Ferguson's catalyst model, you know, you can kind of map out that trajectory of it's either. It's either the way you think about what you should do or it's your ability to control when you want to do something that you know you shouldn't. And I I, I almost crudely put that down to kind of, you know, an emotional processing frontal lobe split. But it's interesting, I think, just to see a lawyer kind of almost work his way through this. Um, And then finally, kind of in the... The moral responsibility and personality change section is actually very, very interesting. But basically, he kind of says that if, if... It's an interesting thought experiment... If your friend took drugs, it's interesting, isn't it? I was going to give a, I don't know if I think he's right on this. What he's trying to say is that imagine your friend took drugs or was given a psychedelic drug. Let me get to the the part. I think it's around, um, I think it's somewhere around either page 51. Is it page 51? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Hmm. Anyway, basically, he gives a thought experiment, which is like, imagine your friend. In fact, he says like a, a psychologist changes your brain and, you know, and then you do something horrible. You wouldn't blame the person. You wouldn't say that they're morally responsible because you would know that someone had changed the way that their brain was working. So it's kind of a, a logical extension. You'd say, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not it's not their fault. So his argument is, well, if you know that the brain has been morphologically changed, 
why can't you why can't you um why can't you say the same thing here and as i almost said it then i kind of came up with an interesting kind of i guess i guess twist on that which is you know imagine alcohol and i think alcohol is a really interesting alcohol morph alcohol changes the brain it doesn't morphologically change the brain it changes the brain in terms of it inhibits the firing of serotonin which is known to stabilize the frontal lobe and, and, and allows people to enact some form of impulse control so the argument is you know um uh the frontal lobe you know controls impulses get drunk you're you're less able to control your impulses and but you get this really interesting question of well in that sense then people aren't to blame for their behavior when drunk because you know their brain was morphologically changed therefore it decreased their culpability etc but there's also that kind of interesting adage of well you know drunk i can't remember what it is now like drunk words are sober thoughts or something you know the, the the other view is you know alcohol allows sometimes makes people express who they were inside and that's where the interesting debate comes with the brain stuff is does the does does the does the morphological change just allow you to exhibit who you were inside or does it remove your ability to control thoughts that weren't yours or, were, or that weren't yours to begin with and that's the really tough area of this i i personally don't think this is an area that is is easy to solve and i don't think we will solve it and i i think it will keep being a case by case base and i think it will be the pessimist in me thinks it will probably be phenomenally phenomenally poorly applied uh, or at least it will be very indiv- high levels of individual difference in terms of how it's applied but it really is a, a complicated area because you're trying to shift blame from someone to another part within them which is doing processes that they were doing all along i think the tbi example is interesting because it's such a a dras- it's often a drastic change you know that that kind of d example d he gives often it's a very drastic change which leads to a quantifiable shift in behavior which makes it very easy to separate pre post and causality when it's the more developmental side of neuroscience and developmental um, deviations in, in structural uh, or stru- neurological structure it is more complicated to do that um, but anyway, I, I have talked enough now. Uh, I, I've, I've gone long on this one. I wasn't trying to. Uh, but I really hope you enjoy the article. I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting outline of kind of thinking about brain, person and criminal culpability. And I thought it would be nicer to, I guess, almost have a lawyer deal with it rather than the kind of the because we psychologists can talk about the brain all the time. But it's the lawyers who are the experts in in what this means for culpability. So I hope you enjoyed this lecture. I hope you enjoyed this video. I hope you enjoy the paper. It's a really good one. And it's really going to prop us up for the next couple of weeks. So remember it and enjoy it.